Section 13 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8 The Attack on Cadiz, Part 1. Raleigh was not received again into favorite court on his return from Guiana and was not allowed to go back to his duties as captain of the Queen's Guard. But we are told in a contemporary letter that he lived about town very gallant, and he seems to have been on good terms with the chief men about court. He was very often very private with the Earl of Essex, and did his utmost to bring about a better understanding between him and Sir Robert Cecil, Burley's son, who by his diligence and careful attention to politics was rapidly becoming an important person in the state, and who greatly resented Essex's influence. Meanwhile, everyone was terrified by the increasing power of Spain. In the beginning of 1596, the Spanish forces had managed to seize Calais, and by so doing had filled the English and Netherlanders with alarm. There was again fear of a Spanish invasion of England, but this time the English determined to be beforehand with Philip II. A fleet was equipped which, in combination with the Dutch fleet, was to attack the harbor of Cadiz. This expedition was talked of for a long time. Essex and Raleigh were eager for it. The Queen and Burley, always lovers of peace, had in their old age grown more than ever opposed to war. But at last it became clear that something must be done to stop the growth of Philip's power, and active preparations for the expedition were begun. Drake and Hawkins had both lately died, but there were still plenty of brave seamen to fight for their country. It was arranged that the Lord Admiral Howard should command the fleet, while Essex was to command the land forces embarked for the expedition. Raleigh, who was extremely active in the preparations, was to have command of a squadron. Great difficulties were experienced in getting levies of men for the fleet. Raleigh writes to Cecil, As fast as we press men one day, they come away another and say they will not serve, and the poor Suivant found me in a country village a mile from Gravesend, hunting after runaway mariners and dragging in the mire from alehouse to alehouse. At last everything was ready, and on the 3rd of June, 1596, the fleet set sail from Plymouth and reached Cadiz on the 20th of the same month. As they waited outside the harbour in a high wind, there lighted a very fair dove upon the mainyard of the Lord Admiral's ship, and there she sat very quietly for the space of three or four hours, being nothing dismayed all the while. To most of the men this appeared in the light of a good omen to cheer them on their way. In the harbour of Cadiz was a splendid Spanish fleet, consisting of four huge galleons between twenty and thirty warships and fifty-seven well-armed Indiamen. In the Allied fleet were thirty-three English ships of war and twenty-seven Dutch, besides some transports. Essex's desire was to land his men and begin an attack on the town before attacking the fleet in the bay, and the Lord Admiral, from his care of the Queen's ships, had agreed to this. Myself, writes Raleigh, was not present at the resolution, for I had been sent the day before to stop such as might pass out along the coast. When I was arrived back I found the Earl of Essex disembarking his soldiers, and he had put many companies into boats. The Earl proposed to go on, until such time as I came aboard him and in the presence of all the colonels protested against the resolution, 
giving him reasons and making apparent demonstrations that he therefore ran the way of our general ruin to the utter overthrow of the whole armies, their own lives, and Her Majesty's future safety. The other gentlemen present warmly seconded Raleigh, and his wisdom prevailed. He persuaded the Admiral to attack the fleet first, and when he told Essex of this resolution, the Earl cast his plumed hat into the sea for joy. Raleigh's advice seems to have been listened to in everything. At his earnest entreaty, the charge of leading the body of the fleet was entrusted to him. The attack began the next morning. The mark which Raleigh shot at was the San Felipe, a galleon of 2,000 tons burden, the naval wonder of the age, in respect of which he says he esteemed the other galleys but as wasps. Amongst the English, the great struggle seems to have been who should be foremost in the fight. Once the commander of another ship, whilst Raleigh was too busy to look behind him, secretly fastened a rope onto Raleigh's ship so as to draw himself up equal with him. But Raleigh, being warned of this by one of his company, caused the rope to be cut. The victory was soon won. Two of the great galleons were captured, but Raleigh's desire to shake hands with the San Felipe was thwarted. It and another galleon were run aground and blown up by their commanders that they might not fall into English hands. But in this way, many Spanish soldiers were destroyed. The spectacle, writes Raleigh, was very lamentable on their side, for many drowned themselves. Many, half-burnt, leapt into the water, very many hanging by the rope's ends by the ship's side under the water, even to the lips, many swimming with grievous wounds, strucken under water and put out of their pain, and withal so huge of fire and such tearing of the ordnance in the great Felipe and the rest, when the fire came to them, as if any man had a desire to see hell itself, it was there most lively figured. The fleet was beaten in little over three hours, then the English landed their forces and attacked the town. Raleigh was severely wounded in the leg, but he had himself carried ashore on men's shoulders to see how things were going. He was not able to remain there more than an hour in the town, for the torment that he suffered from his wound. He returned to take charge of the fleet, as there was no admiral left on board, and he himself was unfit for anything but rest at that time. The town was carried with a sudden fury and with little loss. By the evening it was in the hands of the English, and early in the next morning the citadel capitulated. At break of day Raleigh sent to the admiral for orders to follow the fleet of ships bound for the Indies, which lay in the roads of Puerto Real, but Howard and Essex were too busy to attend to him. It was a great mistake not to take vigorous steps to complete the victory by the capture of this great fleet. Raleigh saw what ought to be done, but could get none to second him. In the afternoon the merchants of Cadiz and Seville offered the generals two millions to spare the fleet, whereupon, says Raleigh, there was nothing done for the present. Meanwhile much of the merchandise on board the ships was being carried on land by the Spanish sailors, and early next morning the Duke of Medina Sidonia, the admiral of the fleet, whose pride could not brook the idea of his vessels falling into the hands of the English, ordered them to be set on fire, and all the mighty fleet of men of war and merchantmen were reduced to ashes. So the English lost the chance of gaining possession of this rich prize, though the loss to the Spaniards was as great as if the ships had been taken by the English. 
Whilst the fleet was burning, the English soldiers were busy sacking the town. Orders were given that there should be no kind of violence or hard usage offered to any, either man, woman, or child, on pain of death. These orders seemed to have been obeyed, except that the Dutch, who had done little in the fight, showed a desire to revenge themselves on the Spanish women and children for the horrible outrages committed by Spaniards in the Netherlands, but they were restrained by the English. Howard wrote to the Queen's Council, The mercy and clemency that hath been showed here will be spoken of throughout the world. No aged or cold blood touched, no woman injured, but all with great care embarked and sent to St. Mary's port, and other women and children were likewise sent thither and suffered to carry away with them all their apparel and divers rich things which they had about them, which no man might search for under pain of death. The town, however, was fired by Essex's orders in four quarters and was left a smoking ruin. Essex gave counsel that the English should hold the town of Cadiz, which would have been a perpetual thorn in Philip's side. The position of the city rendered this an easy task, but Howard would not consent. He had done so much as his orders allowed, and he would go no further. He knew that the queen and council at home would not second Essex in his desire for a prolonged war. Essex, much disgusted, had to give way. He next asked that the fleet might go round by the Azores to intercept a rich fleet of Indiamen, which he knew was daily expected there. Howard would not consent to this either, but adhered strictly to his orders and sailed back to England. The fleet reached Plymouth again on the 8th of August. Raleigh had hurried back two days before the rest of the fleet, as there was much sickness on board his ship, so he brought the first news of the victory to the anxious queen and council. Writing to Sir Robert Cecil about the battle, he says, The king of Spain was never so much dishonored, neither hath he ever received so great loss. The earl hath behaved himself, I protest unto you, by the living God, both valiantly and advisedly in the highest degree, without pride, without cruelty, and hath gotten great honor and much love of all. I hope her most excellent majesty will take my labors and endeavors in good part. Other riches than the hope thereof I have none, only I have received a blow which now I thank God is well amended, only a little eyesore will remain. If my life had ended with all, I had then paid some part of the great debts which I owe her. But it is but borrowed, and I shall pay it, I hope, to Her Majesty's advantage if occasion be offered. The spoils on this occasion were not nearly so great as the court had hoped, and disappointment on this account diminished the cordiality with which the victors were received by the Queen. There was, as usual, much quarrelling over the spoils, and those who had done the most probably got the least. On this point Raleigh writes, What the generals have gotten, I know least, they protest it is little. For my own part I have gotten a lame leg and a deformed. I have not wanted good words and exceeding kind and regardful usance, but I have possession of naught but poverty and pain. Though some might be disappointed at the smallness of the spoils, others could see the great importance of this victory. A third of the King of Spain's navy and a great city with its citadel had been destroyed in thirty-six hours by the audacity of a small fleet of English and Dutch. The loss to Philip II was enormous, and once more a stop was put to the growth of his power. 
Essex and Raleigh and others of the younger nobles were eager to go on. Hatred to Spain burnt as fiercely as ever in their breasts, and they longed to crush her utterly. But Elizabeth was old and worn out, and could no longer share their young enthusiasm. Peace was what she wanted, and now that England was safe, she would consent to no more war. Even now Raleigh was not allowed to resume his duties as captain of the guard, but he continued on good terms with Essex and Cecil. His relations with Cecil may be judged from the tone of a letter which he wrote to Cecil on the death of his wife. It is worthwhile to quote some portions of this on account of the light which it throws upon the character of the writer. It shows his strength and firmness, and how clearly he saw that a man must be self-summed, not swayed by every blast of passion, but that taking life as a whole, he must look upon it as something out of which he has to make the best he can for himself and for others. It appertaineth, he writes, to every man of wise and worthy spirit, to draw together into sufferance the unknown future to the known present, looking no less with the eyes of the mind than those of the body, the one beholding afar off, the other at hand, that those things of this world in which we live be not strange unto us when they approach, as to feebleness which is moved with novelties, but that like true men participating immortality, and knowing our destinies to be of God, we then make our states and wishes, our fortunes and desires all one. It is true that you have lost a good and virtuous wife, and myself an honorable friend and kinswoman. But there was a time when she was unknown to you, for whom you lamented then not. She is now no more yours, nor of your acquaintance, but immortal, and not needing knowing your love or sorrow. Therefore you shall but grieve for that which now is as then it was, when not yours, only bettered by the difference in this, that she hath passed the wearisome journey of this dark world, and hath possession of her inheritance. I believe that sorrows are dangerous companions, converting bad into evil, and evil into worse, and do no more service than multiply harms. They are the treasures of weak hearts and of the foolish. The mind that entertaineth them is as the earth and dust, whereon sorrows and adversities of the world do, as the beasts of the field, tread, trample, and defile. The mind of man is that part of God which is in us, which by how much it is subject to passion, by so much it is farther from him that gave it us. Sorrows draw not the dead to life, but the living to death. And if I were myself to advise myself and the like, I would never forget my patience till I saw all and the worst of evils, and so grieve for all at once, lest lamenting for some one another might not remain in the power of destiny of greater discomfort. Yours ever beyond the power of words to utter, W. Raleigh. End of section 13